very warm welcome to the Brexit Briefing with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts. Coming up in this week's edition, further evidence, if it was needed, that the Chequers plan is dead. Frank Field has resigned the Labour whip. What does this mean for one of Parliament's greatest Eurosceptics? And are we heading for a second referendum? I don't think so. Well, what a week it's been. There are rapid developments as I'm recording this late on Sunday evening with the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, effectively deeming the Chequers' proposals unacceptable. Much more on that coming up in a moment, but first of all, I just want to say thanks for all the feedback I've received from last week's Brexit briefing. We're doing very well on the Talk Podcast website, on SoundCloud, and especially on iTunes. So please spread the word among your family and your friends. And you're also very welcome to send me feedback. I'm at Marcus Stead on Twitter, or you can email me at marcusstead at hotmail.co.uk. It's worth taking a moment to remind ourselves of what the Chequers' proposals were all about. In early July, Prime Minister Theresa May and her cabinet met at Chequers, her country residence, to hammer out some concrete plans which could be presented to Parliament in the form of a white paper, and used as the basis of negotiations with the EU. Here's what Theresa May had to say about it at the time. Well, in detailed discussions today, the Cabinet has agreed our collective position on the future of our negotiations with the EU. And our proposal will create a UK-EU free trade area, which establishes a common rule book on industrial goods and agricultural products. This will maintain high standards, but we will ensure that no changes can take place without the approval of our Parliament. Uh, As a result, we will avoid friction in trade, that will protect jobs and livelihoods, and also meet our commitment to Northern Ireland. Uh, We've also agreed a new business-friendly customs model with freedom to strike trade deals around the world. And now we want to get on at pace, negotiating this with the EU to bring prosperity and security to people. That was on the Friday. By the following Sunday evening, the Brexit Secretary David Davis had resigned. And by the Monday afternoon, the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson had also gone. And incidentally, it looks as though on Monday's Daily Telegraph, Boris Johnson is going to be highly critical of the Chequers Agreement and Theresa May's handling of it. There are growing rumours at the moment that Lyndon Crosby, who is David Cameron's former election strategist, is manoeuvring to try and make Boris Johnson Prime Minister. So it could be that the leadership challenge is beckoning. But the Chequers White Paper was split into four chapters economic partnership, security, cooperation and institutional arrangements. And if you want an in-depth analysis of what was in the Chequers White Paper, do check out the Brexit briefing dated the 15th of July. I go into quite a bit of depth in that podcast about it. In an interview that appeared in last week's Sunday Telegraph, the Prime Minister said she will refuse to be forced into agreeing compromises on her Brexit plan that are, quote, not in the national interest, end of quote. And it's that not in the national interest bit that concerns me. That suggests or implies that there is somehow room for manoeuvre because she implies that she's willing to offer concessions if she interprets them to be in the national interest. And following the resignations of David Davis and Boris Johnson before the summer recess, the prominent Conservative MEP Daniel Hannan said that he could just about accept the Chequers' proposals but there was absolutely no further room for manoeuvre. So if the EU is looking for further compromises and Theresa May was to bend to those compromises, 
that would inevitably lead to further resignations. But could the government get the proposals through the House of Commons anyway? The government has a wafer-thin majority, albeit one propped up by the DUP, and the DUP's enthusiasm for the proposals of Chequers are lukewarm, to put it mildly. So it seems likely that the Chequers proposals won't get through the House of Commons at all, or, at best, they'll get through Parliament, but only with the help of Labour MPs, and that would leave the Prime Minister, Theresa May, in a precarious position with regards to her own future. And Boris Johnson's intervention on Monday's Daily Telegraph, the interview he's given, suggests that it's even more wobbly now. Because the hardline Brexiteers, and even the not-quite-so-hardline Brexiteers on the Conservative backbenches, who are not happy with the Prime Minister, have got to wait for the appropriate moment when they know for sure that a vote of no confidence against her would succeed. They require 48 signatures to trigger that vote of no confidence. But if she then went on to win that vote of no confidence, the party rules state that they could not repeat the process again for a year. So timing is everything. By Sunday morning, it seemed likely that the parliamentary arithmetic was going against the government when former Brexit Secretary David Davis spoke to the BBC's Andrew Marshall. Uh, Mr Davis, if the Chequers plan, and the Prime Minister thinks she can get a deal on the basis of it, if that comes back to the House of Commons as the basis of a deal, will you vote for it or against it? I'll vote against it. It would be rather odd for me to resign over something and then vote for it when it came back. In my view, uh, the Chequers proposal, it's not a deal, we shouldn't call it the Chequers deal, it's the Chequers proposal, uh, is actually almost worse than being in. I mean, we will be under the rule of the European Union with respect to all of our manufactured goods and agri-foods. Uh, that's uh, a really serious concession. What about take-back control? Doesn't work. Uh, that actually leaves us in a position where they dictate our future uh, rules with us out without, without us having a say at all. The Chequers' proposals were dealt a hammer blow late on Sunday evening when quotes from an interview Michel Barnier gave to German newspaper Frankfurter Allemagne Zeitung were published. Mr Barnier said Mrs May's plans would be the end of the single market and the European project. The British have a choice, he said. They could stay in the single market, like Norway, which is also not a member of the EU, but they would then have to take over all the associated rules and contributions to European solidarity. It is your choice. But if we let the British pick the raisins out of our rules, that would have serious consequences. Then all sorts of other third countries could insist we offer them the same benefits. End of quote. He said another problem was that many goods now come with services attached, meaning they were hard to separate in a trade deal. We have a coherent market for goods, services, capital and people. Our own ecosystem that has grown over decades, he said. You cannot play with it by picking pieces. There is another reason why I strongly oppose the British proposal. There are services in every product. In your mobile phone, for example, it is 20 to 40% of the total value. End of quote. It now seems very likely, and the evidence is growing by the day, that the Chequers proposal is unfeasible for all sorts of reasons. And as I said in last week's Brexit briefing, I believe calls for Britain to join EFTA will increase as we go through the autumn.
On now to the story of veteran Labour MP Frank Field, who last week resigned the Labour whip in response to alleged anti-Semitism in the party, whilst also citing what he called a culture of intolerance, nastiness and intimidation in local parties. Field lost the confidence vote in his constituency party a month before his resignation after siding with the government in key Brexit votes. Crucially, he remains a member of the Labour Party, though it seems likely he will be thrown out of the party if he does not retake the whip within the next two weeks. Mr Field, now aged 76, is one of the most principled people in Parliament. He has the respects of all sides of the House for his long track record in the area of welfare reform, and during the early New Labour years post-1997, he served as Minister for Welfare Reform, where he made radical, albeit unsuccessful, proposals to change the structure of the welfare system and discourage welfare dependency. Following the 2017 general election, Mr Field was re-elected unopposed as chairman of the Work and Pension Select Committee, where again he enjoys the confidence of all sides of the House. He was first elected as MP for Birkenhead in 1979, and has since grown his majority from below 6,000 to a new record of above 25,000 at the 2017 general election, with more than three quarters of votes cast in his constituency. Mr Field also has a long track record as a principled Eurosceptic. As regular listeners to the Brexit briefing know, I repeatedly state the importance of the UK leaving the customs union for Brexit to be a success. On the 17th of July 2018, a vote was held on a rebel amendment to a trade bill which aimed to force the government to join the customs union in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Mr Field, along with Kate Hoey, John Mann and Graham Stringer, were the only Labour MPs to oppose the amendment, which was lost by 307 votes to 301. All four of those Labour MPs are facing disciplinary matters of one sort or another from their local constituency parties. Here's what Mr Field had to say after announcing his decision to resign the Labour whip. Well, I think um, a one a straw that broke the camel's back, or my one anyway, was the Chief Rabbi's statement, which is pretty horrendous. And I think we in the Labour Party have got to wake up. It's no point of us saying, no, 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 this is not anti-Semitic. If Jews actually say it is, they're on the receiving end. I think we've just got to accept that, well, then we'd better change our behaviour, didn't we, if you say. The idea that we're telling them they're getting it wrong, um, the Jewish community, so that is one of the big issues. The second one is that over 18 months I've been trying to get action to turf out some of the worst bullies in the Labour Party locally and failed dismally. Um, my wish is to stand next time as a uh, Labour candidate in Birkenhead, if Providence allows me to stand. Um, but if not, I shall stand as an independent Labour candidate. And the sovereign body in this is not a local group of people who I, you know, the thuggery I despise, but the electorate. The voters of Birkenhead will decide who they wish to uh, have as their Member of Parliament. If they dismiss me, that's a very honourable exit. But the idea one's going to be run out of town by a tiny group of people whose views are totally unrepresentative of the Labour vote in Birkenhead, I'm not prepared to take that. Frank Field speaking to Sky News there. 
What's clear is that while Mr Field takes seriously the ongoing row about anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, as he should, there is a wider picture here. The Labour Party's grassroots membership grew dramatically in the period immediately before and after Jeremy Corbyn became leader, to somewhere in the region of 552,000 today, meaning Labour is probably the largest party in terms of membership in Western Europe. But many of those new members buy into Mr Corbyn's hard-left ideology and have no time for Mr Field's principles, which tend to be more socially conservative, based around national sovereignty, his Christian faith, strong families and personal responsibility. Some, like the former Labour MP George Galloway, have argued that if the Customs Union Amendment had passed, it would have caused the collapse of Theresa May's government, and therefore Mr Field, along with Hoey, Mann and Stringer, are responsible for propping up the Conservative government, and therefore have blocked Mr Corbyn's pass to Downing Street. But I utterly reject that argument. All four of those Labour MPs have strong track records as Eurosceptics, and share my belief that not being part of the customs union is crucial if Brexit is to be a success. With that in mind, they put the national interest before the party interest, which are the hallmarks of a decent, principled politician. Mr Field, I salute you. Good luck in the battles that lie ahead. And finally this week, calls for a so-called people's vote on the Brexit deal continue. But is a second referendum even possible? When Article 50 was triggered, it was enshrined into law that the United Kingdom would leave the European Union on the 29th of March 2019 at 11pm. Can it even be stopped? Well, that in itself would require legislation. Um, the person who created Article 50, which is an EU article, has said that it can be stopped, but that's disputable from a British law point of view because the Parliamentary Act would need to be repealed and the process stopped that way and that in itself could face legal challenges. So is a second referendum even possible? If a referendum was to take place, putting the legislation in place for that referendum and the campaigning process would take about a year, taking us well past the 29th of March 2019. And the other thing to remember is there seems to be an assumption on those calling for a so-called people's vote. I thought we had a people's vote in June 2016, but never mind. Those calling for a people's vote seem to be thinking that if the Brexit deal is rejected in a second referendum, then that would be the end of the matter and we could somehow just stay in the EU on the same terms as we were before and pretend the last two years have never happened. Well, one, that is extremely naive in thinking that the 17.4 million people um, who voted leave in 2016 are just going to quietly go away and be patted on the head and, and their, their calls dismissed. And the second is, even from the EU's point of view, if, the, if Brexit was called off at this stage, they would very likely want something quite substantial in return. Um, and that is likely to mean something along the lines of bailing out Italy from its current economic crisis. But there's something quite cute and incredibly patronising about those calling for this second referendum who seem to think that the British people didn't know what they were voting for in the first place. Here's what the then Prime Minister David Cameron had to say just a few months before the Brexit vote. And I say to those who are thinking about voting to leave, think very carefully because this choice cannot be undone. 
And to those who are campaigning to leave, but actually hoping for a second referendum, I say, decide what you believe in. If you think we should leave, and leave means leave, then campaign for that and vote for it. And ultimately, it will be the judgment of the British people in the referendum I promised that I will deliver. You will have to judge what is best for you and your family, for your children and grandchildren, for our country, for our future. It will be your decision whether to remain in the EU on the basis of the reforms we secure or whether we leave. Your decision. Nobody else's. Not politicians, not parliaments, not lobby groups, not mine. Just you. You, the British people, will decide. At that moment, you'll hold this country's destiny in your hands. This is a huge decision for our country. Perhaps the biggest we'll make in our lifetimes. And it will be the final decision. So to those who suggest that a decision in the referendum to leave would merely produce another stronger renegotiation and then a second referendum in which Britain could stay, I say, think again. The renegotiation is happening right now. And the referendum that follows will be a once-in-a-generation choice, an in-or-out referendum. When the British people speak, their voice will be respected, not ignored. If we vote to leave, then we will leave. There'll not be another renegotiation and another referendum. So I say to my European counterparts, with whom I'm negotiating, this is our only chance to get this right for Britain and for the whole European Union. The then Prime Minister David Cameron during his Chatham House speech in the autumn of 2015, when he was renegotiating the terms of the UK's membership of the EU in the run-up to the following year's referendum. You may recall he didn't get very much at all out of those renegotiations. Mr Cameron was clear and unequivocal in that speech. There would be one referendum. No further renegotiations, no second chances. It wasn't an advisory referendum, as the Ramonas claim. He made a clear commitment to implement the decision, whichever way it went. Beyond that, let's not forget that government booklet that was delivered to every household in the land that included the line, This is your decision. The government will implement what you decide. Well, 17.4 million people voted Leave, giving the Leave side victory by more than a million votes. When the Ramonas cry foul play, just remind them of Project Fear, which included George Osborne's non-existent emergency budget and Barack Obama's absurd back-of-the-queue threat, which was incredible, really, because he wasn't going to be president when Brexit was due to happen, regardless of which way the vote went. And you know what? I think Barack Obama's intervention may even have swung it for the Leave side. What this is really all about and we've seen this time and time again, is the establishment, the old order, kidding themselves into thinking that the British people were somehow conned and misled in some way. The real dividing lines are between big business, the huge corporations on the Remain side, who've formed a peculiar alliance with middle-class people working in the public sector, who are quite comfortably off, and those working in the university sectors and so on, on the other side, the Leavers, they're an alliance of those living in the old industrial north or the South Wales Valleys, who haven't seen any tangible benefit to EU membership. For them, it means wage suppression, as mass uncontrolled immigration 
brings a supply of cheap labour, while their jobs often disappear overseas. And there's some overlap with them to other people in the Leave Alliance, people concerned about loss of sovereignty and a lack of democratic accountability, along with the small and the medium-sized business owners and workers who regard the EU and its endless regulation as working in the interests of big corporations rather than in the interests of the have-a-go entrepreneurs who require flexibility to make their businesses a success. The Leave vote was a very broad church, from George Galloway to Norman Tebbit to former SDP leader David Owen. Yes, people did know what they were voting for, and they now expect the political establishment to accept and implement their decision. Furthermore, at the 2017 general election, 67% of people voted for either the Conservative or the Labour Party, who had clear manifesto pledges committed to delivering Brexit. It's now time to get on with it. And that brings us to the end of this week's Brexit briefing. I'm fully expecting there to be significant developments in the days ahead as Parliament returns from its summer recess and as the fallout from Boris Johnson's piece in Monday's Daily Telegraph continues. I'll be back with another Brexit briefing next week. In the meantime, feel free to drop me a message on Twitter at Marcus Stead or email me at marcusstead at hotmail.co.uk. Have a good week and thank you for listening.